The United States has a crisis of incarceration. Despite the U.S. making up only about 5% of the global population, the U.S. has nearly one quarter, or 25%, of the world's prison population. We are the most imprisoned people in the world. As if the crisis in prison and jails wasn't problematic enough, the global coronavirus pandemic has severely threatened the safety, health, and life of men, women, and children who are behind bars in the United States. I'm Mae Cannon, and this is Hashtag Activism. Many justice advocates are calling for decarceration, alternatives to the prison system to address the threats of the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, since 1970, the incarcerated population in the U.S. has increased by 700%. That means 2.3 million people in prison and jails in the U.S. today, far outpacing population growth and crime. Talking with us today is pastor, academic, and advocate Dominique Gillard. Gillard is the author of the excellent book, Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores, where he addresses issues around incarceration theologically, biblically, and sociologically. Dominique serves as the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Mission Priority of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Gillard has degrees in history, African-American studies, a master's in history from East Tennessee University, and a master's of divinity degree from North Park Theological Seminary. In his book, Rethinking Incarceration, Dominique talks about five systems that come to be known as a part of the prison pipeline, the war on drugs, private prisons, the war on immigration, mental health, and the school-to-prison pipeline. He says, each of these pipelines are built on a legacy of racist and classist legislation that has paved the way for our present carceral epidemic. Incarceration is not the only epidemic affecting these populations today. COVID-19 has had devastating effects on the prison population, with PBS reporting that over 70% of inmates in the U.S. have tested positive for COVID-19. That's an astounding number of men and women who have limited ability to socially isolate and must experience the consequences of a potentially deadly disease. Dominique joins us to talk about those realities. Specifically in the context of the COVID pandemic, uh, decarceration is a call that concerned citizens are making and pleading before specifically the district attorney and governors to ask individuals who are incarcerated to be released either into alternative forms of confinement or in general, because there is no way for people who are incarcerated in jails, prisons, or detention centers to practice social distancing, to practice the hygiene recommendations that medical professionals have passed on to us, and they are also housed in what's notoriously unsanitary conditions. And so it is really a plea 
for the affirmation of humanity and dignity of incarcerated people to say that incarceration shouldn't equal a death sentence because essentially men and women who are incarcerated right now are confined within hot boxes or what many people have called petri dishes for the disease to rapidly spread without any kind of concern for the collective. And that's not just for incarcerated people, it's also for guards and individuals who work within the facility too. How prolific is the spread of the virus in our prison system? Is it significant? I mean, how many people are being infected? The number of people behind bars was already at record levels. And when we introduce something like COVID, then we start to see that prisons, jails, and detention centers, many of which were already overcrowded, have become a breeding ground for the virus to the point that as of May 21st, on the federal level, there were 143,666 incarcerated people who have tested positive for the virus. And there was an institution in Ohio where 73% of the individuals who are incarcerated have tested positive for the virus. So we're seeing it is highly contagious and particularly spreading like wildfire behind bars. And I've heard that this is very personal to you, that you work with some of the population behind bars. What um, type of engagement do you have personally and what kind of direct encounters have you had? One of the things I get to do in addition to my nine to five is that I am a professor in a master's program that North Park Theological Seminary runs right outside the city of Chicago in Stateville Correctional Center. And we are the only institution in the state of Illinois that offers master's level education for incarcerated individuals. And so we have a unique program where people who are going to get Outside students, free students who are pursuing their seminary education have the opportunity to participate in the program, and it's a combined learning classroom inside of a maximum security prison, and they come in each week and take their classes alongside of incarcerated men who are also pursuing their master's. And in this combined learning classroom, each year we accept 40 students, and we have cohorts that they join. And over the course of the four years, they walk with each other um, to get their master's. And so we have two cohorts that are currently going, which means that we have 80 incarcerated men who are enrolled, who are actively pursuing their master's degree. We unfortunately have already lost two of our students to COVID the first of which passed on the morning of Palm Sunday, and then the second of which passed three days later. I've kind of spent time with investing in and learning from um, my students and to see them kind of just left to fend for themselves in what medical professionals are describing as a pretty impossible predicament has really rested heavily on me. And I'm so sorry to hear about your personal loss. You know, you talk about the humanity of inmates, and I've spent a fair amount of time 
in my own ministry in the context of different prison environments, you know, at Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola or LCIW, the Louisiana Correctional Institute for Women. And I often tell people, I learned to preach in Angola <laughs> and are very direct in their feedback, yes. let's just say. Yes, yes, you know, yes. Men and women know the scriptures so well and have yes. had these incredibly transformative experiences. And I sometimes tell people that some of the men I knew in Angola are more free than free people. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they have shown me a new dimension of who God is and have borne witness to the transformative power of the gospel in ways that I have not seen outside of institutions, carceral institutions. As you say, I mean, the knowledge that in our case, uh, Stateville is just a men's facility. So the knowledge that these men have of the word of God, I mean, surpasses mine in many respects in regards to their ability to be able to cite chapter and verse and like huge blocks of scripture, just like the back of their hand. But these men are zealous for the word of God. I mean, they are the most engaged students I've ever had in my life. And I've taught in graduate schools, undergraduate institutions. And these men are zealous for the word. They are rigorous in their analysis. They hold you accountable to making sure that you're as as though my my ancestors used to say that your theology is so heavenly good that it has no earthly implications. They make sure that you have a very on the ground reality that has feet to walk, that has power to help transform the lived realities of people around us, and that is centered in the discernment of the Holy Spirit. And so for me, it's really been empowering and transformative as a teacher where, you know, I think one of the historic mistakes the church has made when it's thought about ministry, uh, prison ministry or ministry to the incarcerated is the thought that we're going to bring Jesus into the prison or into the jail. Jesus is already there. Jesus is already at work. And to be able to go and participate with what God is already enacting and the transformation that God already started to breed before I got there has really been a testimony to what does it mean to kind of have a humble disposition in the work that we're called to and to realize that God is inviting us into pre-existing work, not to go be pioneers um, with a kind of missionary in a in a negative way, missionary is kind of complex that we are saviors, that we are the ones who bring good news to those heathen people. Um, That's just, that 100% has not been my experience. And I think that mindset has actually deterred the body from being more impactful behind bars than what we actually have the opportunity to be. And I think for me, when I live into my experience behind bars is really kind of reemphasize the significance of Matthew 25 where I think that passage has been interpreted in a multitude of different ways. But I think at its core, what Jesus is asking us is how close are we willing to get to people, socially condemned people that we have been taught to avoid fear and disdain? Because when we get close to those people, I believe 
there's something unique about the gospel that gets opened up. I think we start to understand the urgency of the context in which we're called to minister in. And when I go behind prisons, just cells and jail cells, the urgency that we are called to right now as the body of Christ in regards to the system of mass incarceration, and particularly in this moment in regards to liberating the captives for their humanity, for their dignity in the context of COVID has been something that has really been unlocked for me because the the truth of the matter is if we don't do anything, there are going to be massive casualties across the board and incarceration should not equate to a death sentence. So one of the things we've been doing in this activism series is really saying, how can we move beyond solidarity on social media? You know, we can use our hashtags, we can tweet, we can like things on Facebook. And so if you were to identify some practical steps listeners could take to address the problems that you just started to touch on in terms of mass incarceration, in terms of the current reality with COVID, what are a couple of things people can do to respond? Yeah. So in regards to COVID, some of the things we've seen be successful right now across the nation is calling your district attorney and your governor and advocating for some of the things that have been most likely to succeed, which are decarcerating individuals who have committed nonviolent crimes and who are considered low risk in regards to reoffending. The second one is asking for early release for people who are on the last leg of their stint. California released 3,500 people who had 60 days or less on their sentence, and Maine has released uh, nonviolent people with nonviolent offenses who had 90 days or less on their offense, uh, record. The other thing would be to release all individuals who are detained right now for pre-trial detention, which means that they are detained, not because they've been convicted of any criminal offense. They are only incarcerated because they don't have the money to pay their bail. So these are individuals who we don't know whether or not they've actually guilty or innocent yet, and they're only incarcerated because they can't afford to pay bail. All of those individuals right now in this crisis moment amid this pandemic should be immediately released. And then the other thing we've seen be successful is to really advocate for people who are 65 years and up, who the chance of them reoffending really is very marginal, and they have have a higher chance of contracting and passing along COVID. Uh, because of pre-existing diseases and a weakened immune system past a certain age. So those are a couple of recommendations that have actually been proven to work. Two other things I would really immediately advocate for, all people who have been incarcerated for marijuana offenses, particularly in states that have legalized marijuana, should be immediately released. That's just such a contradiction to me that a state can legalize marijuana is getting a ton of money off the legalization of marijuana and people are still serving time behind bars before a marijuana offense. And then the last one would be to decarcerate women, uh, pregnant women right now, because we have recently found out that COVID can be passed down to the children. And so there needs to be alternative carceral spaces for women if they are going to remain incarcerated outside of a prison context for the health of the child. So those are a couple very tangible things people can do. The other things that you can do 
is to call the chaplain at your local facility and find out how you can raise money to provide masks for surgical masks for incarcerated people. Most people behind bars don't have masks. Provide cleaning supplies, hand sanitizer, and sanitation wipes. Those would also be very helpful, very tangible things that you can do right now. In regards to the broader system of mass incarceration, I think there is a movement right now that is going on to end cash bail. Cash bail is something that historically was just used for people who committed very serious offenses who were considered high flight risk. But somewhere over the course of time, it got expanded and is now pretty much applied to everybody for any offense. And they have done studies and they found out that about 85% of people throughout the country don't actually have the liquid cash to pay for a bail at the time of their sentencing. So we have a proliferation of individuals who are serving time behind bars who have never even gone before a judge to determine if they're guilty or innocent, which seems like a contradiction in a nation that prides itself on people being innocent until proven guilty and being a land of the free. And so that's a very critical thing um, that we can do that has tangible impact in regards to the number of people behind bars and also what it would look like to create a more equitable justice system. Because some of your listeners might be thinking, oh, that's not big, that big of a deal because people will go uh, before a judge in two to three days, maybe a week at max. Well, that's not true. There have been cases where people have literally served 10 years behind bars before being able to see a judge. The quintessential case in how problematic this could be is the case of Khalif Browder. If people haven't uh, heard his story, look him up. But he was ultimately a high school senior coming home from a party who was accused of stealing a book bag. Uh, officers stopped him, said they wanted to take him down to the precinct to ask him a few questions, and they were going to let him go after ask, questioning him. Well, he went down to the precinct. They decided not to let him go. He ultimately ended up spending three years behind bars before ever getting a chance to go see a judge. In the midst of those three years, he was sentenced to 180 days of solitary confinement, which is when an individual is locked up in isolation in a cell that's smaller than a horse's stall for 23 of the 24 hours of the day, given access to sunlight and human contact one hour a day. And he was ultimately assaulted by guards and other incarcerated people to the point that he tried to take his life six times behind bars over the course of those three years. When he actually got in front of a judge, he was found innocent of all charges. But because of the trauma that he endured behind bars, he ended up taking his life within a year on the outside. That's a tragic story that really epitomizes why pretrial detention is so dangerous and why we really need to adamantly work to end it. And Dominique, we need to end on a note of hope. What hope do you have that we can make a difference? I am actually seeing a lot of people mobilized to get a number of people released right now. Decarcerate Now is a movement that is actually working. We're seeing a number of successes. Like I said, California has probably been the best example. The governor there, um, because of a lot of the advocacy and the activism, a lot of which was faith-rooted through PICO and other organizations, 
he decided to sign an emergency bill that actually eliminated cash bail for all nonviolent offenses right now. So anybody who is is incarcerated or has been incarcerated uh, within a certain time span for a nonviolent offense immediately got a chance to be decarcerated. So celebrating kind of moments like that, celebrating some of the activism that we've been seeing on the ground with a number of people advocating to restore voting rights in a number of different states. Kentucky was one that recently restored voting rights to formerly incarcerated individuals. And just a lot of work on the grounds around things like ending the death penalty, increasing the age for juveniles to be able to be tried as adults. A lot of that kind of stuff has really been really encouraging. But I think the most encouraging thing that I've seen is I'm starting to see the church awaken to its responsibility to actually get involved in our criminal justice system in a way that breeds transformation and change. And I think if people haven't seen it, I want to encourage you highly to make some time to go see, well, now at home, see the movie Just Mercy. It's a brilliant movie that kind of really encapsulates our call. And I was able to interview Brian Stephen Atson, and I want to close with this last quote that he had about what he hoped the movie would do. He says, I want to see people of faith get reengaged. The gospel talks not only about feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and providing shelter to the homeless, but it also talks about going into jails and prisons and standing with the accused. And we haven't done that in the way that I think we should. And I hope this film helps inspire a conversation that leads us into that place. And that would be my hope for this podcast, that this is a conversation that helps inspire the church to be in the places that we're supposed to be, to be willing to go to those stigmatized places and bear witness to the gospel in powerful and transformative ways. Listening to these realities, how can we respond? Many of us engaging in this conversation are a part of small groups or church communities or other organizations. One of the things we can do is start a book study of Dominique's book, Rethinking Incarceration. InterVarsity Press, the publisher, shared a discount code for listeners with this podcast that can be found on the resource page at my website at www.maycannon.com. I'll never forget when I was serving as an executive pastor in California, and I'd first started serving the church, some of the members of the council said to me, you'll never be able to start a prison ministry here at this church. Now, more than 10 years later, and I've been gone from that church for quite a while, there's a thriving prison ministry that meets regularly with men who are incarcerated at San Quentin. So consider starting a prison ministry or meeting with a local prison or jail chaplain to see ways your church and community might be able to engage to support the men, women, and children who are behind bars. We should be reminded of Jesus's words in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, 
and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. We're called by Jesus to visit with those who are in prison. That does not mean we should ignore them. It means we should be in relationship with them. I've heard some conservative theologians argue that Jesus was referring that we should only visit those who are imprisoned falsely, but that contradicts everything we know about the person of Christ. He walked alongside of those who were the most rejected in society. Another great book and resource is Just Mercy that was written by Brian Stevenson. That book's now made it into a major Hollywood movie by the same title. Just Mercy tells the story of Brian and his ministry at the Equal Justice Initiative, which focuses on its commitment to end mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the United States, to challenge racial and economic injustice, and to protect basic human rights for the most vulnerable people in American society. Equal Justice Initiative is an incredible organization to support. Another one is the International Prison Fellowship, founded by the formerly incarcerated Christian advisor to President Nixon, Chuck Colson. The International Prison Fellowship has great ways to get involved. You could sign on to their Justice Declaration. You could participate in their Angel Tree resources for churches. There's so many things we can do to make a difference. May we pray for those who are in prison, and may our prayers be accompanied by actions of advocacy and justice as we seek to address the crisis of incarceration in the United States today. Much of the content from our conversations during episodes of Hashtag Activism come from my upcoming book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age, out with InterVarsity Press on May 26th. You can pre-order your copy today at a local bookstore like heartsandmindsbooks.com or wherever books are found.